is 10.58 in the morning on Wednesday, March 11th, 2020. This is the LDS Life Podcast. I'm Kevin Williams, podcasting to you from Pleasant Grove, Utah. I know it's been a while since I've had a podcast, but believe me, I have some good ones in the works. And uh, one of these podcasts that I've been preparing for is Brent Ashworth. How are you, Brent? Good. How are you doing, Kevin? I'm good. Uh, I've uh, tried to get you on for a good year and a half, and I had an epiphany. I had to just meet you, come to find out. The reason you didn't respond mm-hmm. is I've had the wrong email address the whole time. So it's a good <laughs> well, thing to be a person. <laughs> yeah. Sure. Um, and yeah, you've got a nice store. Uh, you know, it was nice to reminisce oh, about thank you for coming. Yeah, it was like uh, sitting in a lounge when your biography came. What a coincidence <laughs> that was. Uh, we were okay. talking about Mark Hoffman, and uh, we're going to get into mm-hmm. Mark here in a minute. Uh, we were talking okay. about Mark Hoffman. She sent a picture of that Sears stone. Did you ever? Uh, did you? Did anything ever come out of that? By the way, which was that? I'm sorry. Well, the, yeah. uh, well I, I guess uh, she was your biographer. Tracy was in a bookstore down mm-hmm. in St. George and found a Sears stone that she for that he forged. Did oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, no, I haven't, I haven't followed up with that yet. No, but I probably okay. need to. Well, anyway, uh, this will be a very fascinating interview. I think we'll talk a lot about Mark Hoffman. Then I want to get into some other documents, but uh, I want to ask probably a loaded question and you can take as much time as you want on this. Cause I realize it's loaded. What was Mark Hoffman mm-hmm. like in person? Uh, he was rather nondescript. He was somebody that would uh, uh, melt right into a crowd if you saw him. Um, you would probably wouldn't take much much notice of him. Uh, I think um, part of it was due to his um, uh, personality, at least to what he projected. Um, and he came across... Um, Mostly the Easterners and other dealers that I ran into as kind of a country bumpkin. Um, and uh, uh, that was, uh, you know, he was very low-key, shall we put it. Okay. Do you think that he changed the way that documents are collected? Do you think he changed the document collecting community forever? Because I would imagine I think if you're so. a document collector, you're still <laughs> talking about Mark, even if you're a millennial or something. Yeah. Yeah, it's only been 35 years or so, but yes, it's uh, he changed the the uh, uh, the nature of collecting from the standpoint of uh, wanting to get uh, better provenance, gen- genealogy on where things come from, uh, get more of a of a hands-on history, uh, so we know uh, what they are. Do you think um, that there but, are? Uh, oh, go ahead. No, that's 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 all. I think uh, I think uh, people are more wary now of uh, historical documents that uh, claim to have uh, uh, importance. You know. Yeah. Do you think that there are people out there forging documents and getting away with it, or is that over now since Mark Hoffman changed the whole document dealing business? Well, I don't think it'll ever be over. I don't think uh, it's wise for us to take the position that uh, there are no forgers because I'm sure there are. Uh, Hoffman himself once answered a groupie's letter to in prison, which I was able to look at, uh, by saying uh, uh, when she said he was called him the greatest forger of ever, he said, no, the greatest forger is the one that didn't get caught. So, uh, yeah, we've got to presume that there are others out there. What I don't understand is why in the world did Kenneth Rendell, 
who authenticated the Salamander letter um, and other documents. The Salamander letter is the most famous. Why did he authenticate it and these other documents, dealers like uh, uh, Hamilton, I can't Charles remember, Charles Hamilton. Hamilton. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Why did mm-hmm. they authenticate Bob, those and George Throckmorton busted them? Well, I think part of the, yeah, I think part of the problem is that uh, they're not educated like George is. Um, George, uh, you know, is one of the few people in the United States that uh, went and got a advanced degree in, uh, in um, uh, you know, in uh, document verification. And by that, I mean, he went to extra years of college to, uh, to, uh, uh, to study uh, forgery and to study uh, different kinds of uh, inks and to, and to study, um, you know, the manner in which forgers have acted in the past. Now, Hoffman, Hoffman himself broke a lot of those rules. Um, Hamilton and, uh, and uh, Rendell were good friends of mine. Um, Hamilton's passed on. We called him Butt. And uh, uh, he and I uh, had quite a connection over many years. Hamilton was considered the, uh, um, you know, kind of the... Uh, uh, the man to go to in the United States um, on his knowledge of documents, he wrote uh, some 30, 30 books on the subject. Rendell's written a number himself. Rendell's still living, both good friends. Um, but, uh, you know, I just don't think they had the, the scientific background nor thought that it was necessary. Hamilton used to boast about the fact that he could see a forgery across the room could tell that it was a forgery. Well, that's not a scientific approach. That's a, that's an approach of someone that's seen a lot of autographs and they appear to be the same. Um, unfortunately, the uh, uh, Dean Jesse at the LDS Church had seen a lot of, and is a good friend, and has seen, seen a lot of Joseph Smith uh, autographs too. Uh, and uh, we went to Dean to authenticate a lot of the uh, forgeries, um, which he did because they, they looked uh, so uh, close to uh, to Joseph Smith's handwriting, but uh, Throckmorton is a um, uh, you know he he's a scientist as well as a detective, and um, there are very few of those uh, in America. The United States uh, only boasts about 500 of them that have that uh, uh, advanced document degree, and uh, and as part of that uh, association, some states like New Mexico, last I checked, didn't even have one. Throckmorton was the only one that had that degree. Um, uh, in the, in Utah at the time of the uh, uh, Hoffman uh, uh, perfidy, and and he was uh, attached to Dave Wilkinson of the AG's office, uh, and had to basically uh, get himself, uh, uh, you know, loose from that office to go help the county uh, in the Hoffman case when he could see that they were having uh, trouble uh, examining documents. So there's a big difference. There's a wide difference between. Uh, the background, uh, both Randall and Hamblin have written books on forgery. Um, and uh, they've had, uh, they, they both testified in trials uh, on forgers and things like that. But um, uh, but uh, my good friend George Schrockmorton, he's he took it to a, a much higher level of uh, scientific understanding, which they missed. Well, it's interesting that, uh, by the way, for those of you that don't know what we're talking about, let me just fill you all in. Mark Hoffman, for those millennials that may be listening or other folks, was a famous document forger back in the late 70s to mid-80s, and he forged a bunch of documents to the LDS Church, and we're going to get into Oath of a Freedman and all these other documents that he was forging, and it looked like the Library of Congress 
was actually going to buy the Oath of a Freedman, but it was priced too high. And so we'll get mm -hmm. into that. But uh, he sold a bunch of forged documents to the church. And Brent Ashworth is here to talk to us about it. He had a lot of dealings with Mark. Now, it's interesting, though, that in the... And by the way, uh, if you want to know more about this, I would recommend you read the book Salamander. It's just called Salamander by Linda Silito. I'll put a link in the show notes. Now, uh, it's interesting that... I think it was law enforcement, I can't remember who it was, took a document back to uh, back east and Charles Hamilton admitted long before the trial that it was forged and he didn't catch it. Do you remember that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, what was that? Yep. Why did he not detect it in the first place? Did he want to believe so badly that it was real? This was Hamilton, uh, Joseph Smith, uh, 1828. Yes. Yeah, letter. I think it was the Anton uh, yeah. transcript or something like that. Well, you're you're talking about the Anton. That was yeah, that was uh, the early one. Uh, that was one of the documents. I can't remember. Uh, right. Uh, yeah, he he did uh, uh, examine a couple of things, um, but yeah, the Anton is what really set things uh, in motion. It wasn't his first, but it was uh, his most famous early one. And it came out in 1980. It was time beautifully to come out with a. 150th anniversary of the history of the church. Um, we've got another big anniversary this year, the, the 200th of the first vision. But um, anyway, yeah, he uh, uh, he he came out with uh, what he claimed was um, uh, the Anton transcript, a transcript of uh, of some of the characters on the uh, the gold plates that Joseph Smith supposedly wrote out. Um, he found them sealed in a book, uh, supposedly belonged to Joseph Smith's great grandfather, Samuel Smith, uh, which he took to, uh, uh, to a uh, professor friend at, uh, Utah State University where he was attending, um, college at the time. And this was one of his, uh, modus operandi. Uh, he would, uh, allow other people to help, uh, to help him in, um, uh, making the discoveries of things, you know, that he created. Um, and, uh, and so A.J. Simmons up there, um, deceased now, but he was a professor that uh, was, was taking the, uh, uh, the uh, Samuel Smith Bible. And uh, they found that the two pages were sealed together when the, when the pages were, uh, were uh, unlocked, opened. Uh, this transcript falls out of the, of the, uh, the Bible, lo and behold. And um, appears to be in Joseph Smith's early handwriting. Uh, appears to be a transcript of the figures on the on the gold plates uh, that uh, Martin Harris uh, uh, supposedly took to uh, uh, Professor Charles Anton. And uh, Anton re reported they couldn't read a sealed book, which is what uh, yep. uh, Harris told him part of it was. Yeah, so I just wonder why Charles Hamilton caught himself uh, later when uh, I think it was the Joseph Smith letter or something was taken to him. Yeah, it was the 1828 letter you're referring yeah. to that Hamilton okay. yeah. saw. And I visited with, uh, with uh, Bud about that. We called him Bud. And uh, he said, uh, he says, well, I, he says, when Hoffman showed up at my office, I told him he probably had a forgery. But uh, the more I examined it, he said, the more it looked like uh, like it was authentic, like it was his uh, his handwriting. And I spoke with him after it had come out that it had been proven to be a, a forgery, the feathering and the ink and cracking and all that. And he said, I wish I could get my letter of authenticity back from uh, Mark and Edith. That's what he said. Wow. 
Um, yeah, it's interesting that because uh, I remember reading the book, The Salamander Letter, and I'm going to swear here, but mm-hmm. it's a quote, son of a bitch, I should have caught this. Uh, this is mm-hmm. long before the yeah. trial. How, what, what do you think changed the second time when he was reading it? Well, I think, uh, you know, we had some, some good scientific, uh, you know, breaking the case with Rockmorton and Flynn. Uh, they, uh, between the two of them, they, uh, came up with, uh, the cracking in the ink and, uh, and other disturbances that, uh, that made it to look like, uh, like it had been put together. You couldn't see the cracking with the naked eye, but you could see it if you got it up to 80 power with a microscope. And, uh, and it was, uh, something that you don't typically see in old letters and documents. There was also a bluing. It turned out that uh, Hoffman was using, using Clorox bleach uh, and actually hanging things up to dry. In fact, uh, it was uh, Joseph's last supposed letter from Carthage Jail that, uh, that broke the case, according to Throckmorton. It was a letter that I own, um, still have the, the original forgery, uh, of, uh, that was sent to Jonathan Dunham by Joseph Smith on the day of, of his death, supposedly the 27th of June of 1844. Um, and Throckmorton told me that... Uh, uh, you could actually see the ink run if you looked at it closely, <laughs> the naked eye, which I hadn't noticed. But he said when he, when he got it under the uh, magnification, he said it was very clear that the, uh, the ink cracked. And that was unusual for, for a document back then. So they started looking at other others of his alleged uh, finds and found uh, similar problems with most of them. Why would Mark tell you... Brent Ashworth, don't tell anybody about this document, whatever document it was that you had. Um, well, we'll get into one, the, the Lucy Max Smith letter. Why did he tell mm-hmm. you, don't tell anyone about this document because if the church finds out they're going to want it and you could get, I can't remember, but he, he basically made a big threat to you. Uh, that the church is going to want this. Why would he, and he didn't do this to just you. He did this to a lot of people. Don't tell anyone that you have this document. Then he would leak it to Lynn Jacobs or the press or somebody. Why would he do that? Well, that was part of his modus operandi. And, uh, you know, uh, to try to keep it secretive. He he knew well that I wasn't going to keep the Lucy Max Smith secret. In fact, I contacted the church uh, about it and, uh, and they wanted to hold a press conference. They thought it was really marvelous. Uh, this brings up the the fact that the church held four press conferences during the Hoffman years. Two of them Mark did. The Anthon transcript's been mentioned, and the Joseph Smith III blessing was the other one he did. And then I thought after that, uh, he kind of used used me on uh, on the the other two, which was um, uh, the uh, um, the Martin Harris letter that was done in pencil, a faith promoting a letter. Uh, the other one he did besides the salamander, and and then the Lucy Max Smith, as you as you mentioned, the church held full uh, press conferences on all four of those. Uh, the only final press conference they held during the Hoffman years was the one after uh, after the murders, you know. So uh, mm-hmm. so he had two and I had two, and all four documents were were of his his uh, making, although we didn't we didn't know the the origin of a couple of them at the time. Yeah. I just remember he would tell Kurt Bench, oh, Lynn Jacobs has the salamander letter, or I think he told yeah, he tell he, Al- he did that. Yeah. Uh, he, he told me that uh, the church would lean on, on me probably as they had on him on the Anton to make sure that they ended up with it. 
And uh, my reaction to that, uh, I was serving as a bishop at the time of the church, and, and of course I would have would have said this no matter what position I had, because I'm an active member of the church. Um, and I just said, well, Mark, if they ask for it, I'll give it to them. And I think that uh, surprised him <laughs> for some reason, you know, like big yeah. deal. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and I remember he would tell Al Rust, don't tell anyone that you have this document or there's going to be controversy, but then he would tell someone else or tell the press or I know. Oh, he, yeah. Did you it. have a document, mm-hmm. uh, one of the documents, the Josiah Stonewall letter, did, wasn't that the one that leaked over Mark Hoffman, uh, leaked it to the press or something. And he told you, yeah, he did. I, I never, I never had that one. Uh, I was okay. a little upset about it because I was visiting Mark at his home down in, down in uh, Draper before he moved to his parents' home. And, uh, and he mentioned to me that uh, he had sold that letter to President Hinckley for $15,000 earlier that day. And I remember being a little upset, not that it went to President Hinckley, but the fact that he never offered it to me because he said uh, earlier that he would offer his next handwritten letter of Joseph to me. And he says, oh, Brent, you wouldn't have wanted this letter. This wasn't a faith-promoting letter at all. Uh, President Hinckley uh, bought it, and he probably uh, will hide it away, is the way he put it. He said, uh, I told him that I didn't have a transcript of it, but I do. Would you like me to read it to you? And I said, look, if you told the president you, had a tran- you didn't have a transcript of it, I sure don't want to hear about it. And uh, and I left his house uh, disturbed about the fact that uh, uh, Joseph Smith had supposedly written a letter to Stoll after the Moroni visits in 1825. This was uh, 1828 on the date of the letter. And I went straight to my uh, father's office, uh, about a 40-minute drive in Provo, and my dad was there, and I mentioned to him, I says, this is the first thing that's really bothered me about Joseph Smith. I've never questioned him in my lifetime. And uh, I don't understand why Joseph Smith would be writing Stoll after he had the, the Moroni visits. And my dad looked at me, and he says, well, son, he says, there's a lot of things in the world that we don't have answers for. He says, you have a testimony the gospel is true, and so do I. So he said, I just suggest you do what I do. I put it on your mental shelf. Someday it'll be answered. That was the best advice I ever had. I only questioned Joseph Smith for that 45-minute ride and uh, never did before or since. And, of course, uh, within a couple of years, we found out that was a forgery. So at the end of that, it wasn't on my mental shelf very long, was it? No. Now, that, for those of you that don't know, the Josiah Stonewall letter was about money digging, correct? Mm-hmm. Right, yeah. correct. Um, well, let's get Which into... we thought Joseph had given up much earlier in his life. We know now he did. Yeah. Well, yeah, let's, yeah, we'll get into that in a little bit, but, uh, let's talk about the, cause I know the church desperately wanted to find, thanks to Mark Hoffman, the 116 page manuscript. I remember reading, uh, Salamander and you asked him about the, the supposed, I can't remember where you got the information from, but somebody at church headquarters told you that there was a 116-page manuscript out there, and you told Mark, and he said, "Oh, it's an old fake." And I, what, what did it yeah. have? 16 pages. Well, we we talked and... about this a couple of times. Maybe I should go back one story, and then I'll get into this. And that is that okay. uh, one day I was up at his home. Usually, I would go to his home on Wednesday mornings when I was visiting our uh, securities attorneys. I was a, a, a corporate attorney for a 12G reporting company with the SEC, so. Everybody knew I went to Salt Lake on Wednesdays, and uh, 
I didn't make any secret of the fact that I would go to Mark's home. I'm usually uh, in Draper for a while in Marie Avenue when he got into his parents' home later. And um, I'd visit with him. He usually baited me with something, and we'd meet down in the mall uh, later that afternoon, Wednesdays, um, at uh, you know at the uh, uh, Walden Bookstore. But uh, anyway, one day I was there at his home, and he said, you know, Brent, I had a discussion with Don Schmidt. Uh, Don Schmidt was the church archivist at the time. And I asked him how much the church would pay for the lost manuscript of the Book of Mormon, 116 pages. And he says, oh, probably, this is the early 80s, probably a couple million dollars. And when he told me that, Brent, I told him I wouldn't sell it to them for less than 10. That was was one tale of Hoffman. Well, uh, a year or two later, I get this call from Jay Todd, the editor of The Ensign. And uh, Jay was a good friend of mine, and he uh, called me, and he says, um, he he seemed a little uh, upset. He says, we've heard... Mark Hoffman discovered the 116 pages, the lost manuscript, the Book of Mormon. So could you find out for us, uh, you know, if that's really the case? So we're hearing that it's got some very negative things on it towards Joseph Smith and the early leadership of the church. And I said, sure, be happy to. Anyway, um, as part of that, I uh, tried to get a hold of Mark. Uh, when you wanted to get a hold of him, he never could, it seemed like. Yeah, we'll His get into that, too. That's an interesting topic. Or something else. Yeah, but I couldn't couldn't reach him, and so I decided. Uh, but one of one of the things Jay told me is he said, "Well, the story goes that he's given it to uh, the Tanners, you know, the uh, Gerald and Sandra, who are, uh, you know, um, I don't know, uh, anti-Mormons or, uh, uh, you know, not uh, uh, they, they, critics uh, of the critics, Church of Jesus Christ, of Latter-day Church. Saints, anyway." Right. Uh-huh. And so I never met them before, and I went down, I found their address, went down, it was behind the, the Dirks Field at the time, on about, what, 12 South or something. They had a big uh, Victorian house there called Modern Microfilm, was the name of their outfit. And I went in and met uh, Sandra and Gerald, um, never met them before. And um, and I asked them, I said, uh, well, uh, I've, I've heard this rumor around that uh, you folks have uh, a copy of the lost manuscript of the Book of Mormon that Hoffman's uh, brought you. And uh, he said, oh, absolutely not. Uh, uh, in fact, Gerald Tanner said, oh, Mark would never bring it here. Uh, we, we questioned his documents, which I didn't know at that point. That was news to me. I didn't realize Gerald was the first one that we know of that started questioning Mark's uh, documents. Well, he says, yeah, it just it doesn't fit in with, this, with the story we know and with the documents we're aware of. And I says, well, that's interesting. Um, any rate, I felt impressed while I was there. I don't know if it was because I was serving as a bishop or just being an active Mormon, but I, I bore my testimony to them. <laughs> I said, I thought, uh, you know, I'll never have this opportunity again, this uh, audience. So I did. And I was surprised at their reaction because rather than put me down or anything, Gerald just said, well, we respect that. Uh, we don't agree with you, but we respect that. And uh, that was my only real encounter with them. Uh, eventually, I got a hold of Mark, and that was a couple of days later, and I asked him about it. And he says, yeah, I think I found them. I says, I think they're down in uh, Bakersfield. And he even showed me some flight tickets that he had in his, uh, in his shirt pocket. And uh, he said, yeah, we're going down to, to take a better look at them. Uh, I think I learned that they had a family member living in Bakersfield. And yeah, one of his sisters. The- yeah, what was going on at the time. But uh, he told me that he was going down to look at this manuscript. Well, a few days later, I was hot on his trail again, and 
And he says, uh, at first he told me uh, these things that were that were in it when he came back. He said, oh, yeah, it's got this marvelous story of, uh, of Lehi and his family in the wilderness. And they're out wandering around for a while. And uh, they find this mine. And the mine has gold and silver and old records and all kinds of, you know, diamonds and jewelry and everything, you know, everything imaginable. And uh, uh, any rate, um, he, uh, he he said uh, the, the the manuscript uh, kind of conforms with uh, uh, that part in your Lucy Mac Smith letter that said that uh, Sarai and Ishmael were brother and sister, you know, which actually have been uh, inferred by uh, Hugh Nibley years before in the 1954 Sunday school manually put out for the church. Now that might have been a possibility, but at any rate, uh, Hoffman ran with that, and uh, that was put into the Lucy Max Smith letter. And he said, "Well, it it jives with that this manuscript." Well, I put the pressure on him, and I think he uh, I think he got scared or something because I was really going full force on it. Um, and a few days later, I got him back, and I says, "Well, I'd really like that manuscript." Uh, and he says, "Oh, I've determined it's a forgery." So he changed 180. Okay. Uh, between okay. those couple of visits. Change 180, and he said, uh, oh, I've determined it's a forgery. I says, well, you know, you were so, uh, you know, uh, hot on it the other day. What happened? And he said, well, he said, for one thing, it's only 62 and a half pages or something long. It's not 116. And I said, well, yeah, maybe there's some missing or something. And he says, uh, he says, "Well, I've determined it's a it's a fake from uh, some of the information. It just doesn't line up at all with uh, with what we know of the Book of Mormon." And I and I was silent for a minute, and then I says, "I guess the collector in me got to me, and I was felt like I was on kind of a secret mission there for the church for a while." And I said, "Well, uh, without saying anything to him about that, I just said, well, how much do you think this family?'" And he said that they were descendants of. Um, of uh, one of the early uh, uh, people, I'm trying to remember the name of him, uh, Squire Pierce was the guy's name, uh, who shows up in one of the E.D. Howe, um, uh, one of the E.D. Howe statements in Mormonism Unveiled, the first uh, large Mormon anti, anti-Mormon anti book, came out in uh, 1834. And uh, and I said, well, how much, uh, how much do you think they'd sell a forgery for? He said, oh, you don't want the forgery. He says, I bet they want five thousand dollars for it Brent um which was a lot more money then and uh I said look Mark I'll give you 10 I'll give you 10,000 if you can get it for me I said I'm intrigued by the fact that anybody would take their time to forge that long of a piece and and try to get it you know across as the uh, lost manuscript anyway he, he got real quiet after that and uh, I kept pursuing it and he never could he never came up with it but uh uh, what he did do, um, in fact, I, I called Jay Todd back at the church and I told him about my offer. And he said, well, I hope you don't expect us to pay that. <laughs> and I said, oh, no, of course not. I did that on my own. I was just intrigued as a collector that somebody would take that time to forge something like that. And um, I kept pressuring Mark. I said, well, how about my offer? You know, won't they take it? And eventually he says, no, they they, they won't sell it. Um, and But he said, he says, I think I could get a, an outline from it. And then I pursued that until he gave me an outline. Um, but what I got was basically uh, just a couple of pages of the outline. Uh, the rest of it I recognized when I went through some papers. Uh, 
that had been uh, dumped by his by his wife later and his family. There was an another page or so of the outline for the for the uh, 116 pages. Do you think Mark and, was uh, actually working and, on the forgery of that? There's no question about it. In fact, I picture what he did in my book because years later I uh, picked up some of the stuff that was thrown out by uh, the police files and um, and Hoffman and what he Hoffman's family and what he did was he'd taken a first edition Book of Mormon and he'd uh, blown that up, being the earliest edition of the book, so that the pages were about twice the size or three times the size of the book. And then he had a numbering system, uh, which I picture in my book, Show and Tell, that came out in 2017 um, by Eborn Books that he mentioned Tracy Felstead wrote. Yep. And um, and I, I picture those there. And uh, he actually hired a person, I was told later by uh, George Throckmorton, uh, hired a person to uh, number every word in the first edition of the Book of Mormon. Now, oh, yes, think that about, was, uh, was Jeff Salt. I yeah. remember that. Yep. How long a how long a forger? Yeah, he he hired him to uh, to to do that, and they worked on it for more than a year. Um, and uh, and I've got the the effort on that. I gave the church a scan of it. I've still got the original work they did. It came in after, uh, of course, after what Mark went to prison. I didn't know about it before, uh, and it's uh, it had like uh, fifteen card files or so, maybe more than that, three by five cards with each individual word cross-referenced to the manuscript. Now, he know he knew, my supposition is that he knew the uh, Bible and the Book of Mormon had both been uh, uh, computer uh, analyzed to that point. And uh, he knew if he was going to come up with a uh, Book of Lehi that, uh, that it had to, you know, coincide somewhat with, uh, with what was uh, later put in the book from First Nephi on. And uh, and so he did some computer anal- ana- analysis. In fact, I was even asked by the police if I'd seen his uh, his office, which I did on one occasion. Uh, but they asked me, among other things, if I'd seen an IBM machine. And I had never really looked in his office. I had to go down there to use the, the phone that his wife invited me to use because the other upstairs one was always broken. And Hoffman was very upset over that, incidentally, his wife and uh, me going down there. But, uh, no, I never looked in the room, really, other than just seeing a desk and stuff. But I guess he had an IBM in there, a computer, and had been doing some analysis, among other things, of the Book of Mormon for his big hit, which was going to be the lost manuscript. Okay, so you think eventually he would have written the 116 pages and forged it to the church had he not done what he did, which we'll get into in a little bit. Well, he was asked about it by the police later in the uh, the transcripts. If you read those, they're voluminous, the big transcripts of his interviews out of the prison. And uh, he uh, talks about, um, uh, sometimes in a bragging fashion, about his work. He's quite proud of that. And uh, he was asked, well, how come you never completed 116 pages? And he says, oh, uh, or the, or the, uh, uh, the McClellan uh, manuscripts. And he said, oh, I just got lazy. People were buying things sight unseen, which is true. Uh, you mentioned the oath of a free man and, and things yeah. like that. He did produce a forgery there, but, but the McClellan, he never produced a forgery on. And he talked about it all the time. So uh, he says people just buying things sight unseen. So, I, you know, I just got lazy and never completed it. Yeah. Um, yeah, let's get into uh, the 
Oath of a Well, let's get into the McClellan collection because I think this will tie into the Oath, Oath of a Freedman. Uh, mm-hmm. The McClellan collection, obviously, Mark did not forge the whole entire thing like he wanted to because time. Now, he said, mm-hmm. you know, uh, Hugh Pennock, author, well, he didn't authorize it, but he was instrumental in having First Interstate Bank, which was uh, in Utah at the time. Now, First Interstate Bank is only in Montana, Wyoming, and Idaho, I believe. Maybe Washington, I can't remember. Uh, certainly Utah, Idaho, and Wyoming. And First Interstate Bank gave him the $85,000 loan. Um, was that because he... It was, think, 100, it was 100, 185. Yeah. Okay, 100, mm-hmm. yeah, 185000 right. um, mm-hmm. Do you think he asked for that because he wanted more money to forge the document? Or what was he going to do with that loan exactly? Well, that's a good question. I have no idea what was really on his mind. I know he sold that collection twice that we know of. He got 185000 from uh, Elder Pinnock, but he also got 185000 from my friend Al Rust, the coin dealer. And uh, that about put Al under, under you know, um, after uh, after that went uh, unpaid. Um, yeah. Al had borrowed uh, 185000 So between the two of them, I think it was about 370000 Hoffman got uh, for not producing anything, you know. I wonder if he requested that loan because he was in so much financial trouble because he obviously was living beyond his means. There was a part in the, the salamander that talked about he had a hot tub, his mobile phone provider, which I don't know who it would have been back then, U.S. West or somebody. They were after him. The utility company was after him. Everybody was after him, the IRS, because he didn't pay his bills on time. I wonder if that loan well, was... Well, you know, the main the main reason for that was the Ponzi scheme he was running. It wasn't that he was living high on the hog. It was that uh, he was he was uh, uh, he was enticing uh, later investors into the into the Ponzi, getting their money and paying off earlier investors. And um, uh, you know, it was a house of cards that was going to collapse at some point. He could only pay them so much when he promised them twenty thirty percent returns on their money. And um, so he got himself in deep with his investors. That was the big problem. Uh, towards the end, he did put money down on a big house. His wife talked about uh, with my wife once. Um, and, yeah, that's, I remember uh, and, that. And uh, other things. Yeah, but he hadn't really, he hadn't really done a lot yet. Uh, you know, uh, he, he did buy the, the MR2 sports car. And we, we sat in that a couple of nights uh, talking about deals. The one he was blown up with. And, and uh, and a few little things, but he really hadn't gotten to uh, spending a lot of the money except on travel and a few things like that. Um, and uh, I think his big problem was that he had made promises to people to uh, pay them off and in order to keep the scheme going. He had to come up with a lot of additional money, you know, to pay the earlier investors off. And, of course, at some point, you can't pay everybody off. And um, and everything started, uh, started to, to collapse on him. Yeah. Um, do you think that he bought a sports car and bought all these luxurious items like the hot tub to keep an image up? That uh, Well, he, had, he and his wife had the hot tub the first time we met them. Uh, my wife and I went up there uh, on a uh, uh, an invitation uh, in uh, 1981, right after we met them. And um, while we were there, they offered to 
have us get in their hot tub with him. So that was before he'd, he'd made some money by then, but that was before the, the big, the big uh, forgeries and stuff, most of them. And, uh, and of course we said, no, we're not interested. And I could tell my wife and I were both feeling uncomfortable and we got back in the car and, uh, as we were heading off from his house, <clears throat> this is the first meeting we had at their home. And, um, uh, they'd invite us up for a barbecue that day, and we had to bring our own meat, which we thought was interesting. But uh, they invited well, us to the hot tub. I've been to plenty of barbecues like that. Yeah, but you know that was the way it went, and uh, and so um, uh, we just thought it was weird because they invited us up. But uh, we were also invited into the hot tub, and so when we got back in the car, uh, my wife said to me, he "says Did you notice that look that Mark uh, had on his face?" when you asked his wife, Dory, that question, and neither one of us can remember what question I'd asked. This was back in 81, early on. But it must have been a humdinger because I said, no, I wasn't looking at Mark. What did he look like? And he says, well, he was staring at his wife, she said, with daggers in his eyes. It was my wife's words. She's never used those words before or since. I said, you mean like like he was going to harm his wife or something? And she says, yeah, and I'd stay away from him. Um, I mentioned this to, to President Hinckley, and I said, I said uh, after the day after Mark went to prison, I was invited up to his office to talk about him, and and, uh, and I told him this story, and he says, uh, I said, when well, you know, my wife told me early on to stay away from him, and she said, he said to me, she did, kind of like, well, why didn't you, and why didn't you warn some of the rest of us, you know, so these women are wired different than us men, and uh, she picked up on I was going to ask his, you, uh, do you think uh, your wife... Do you think your wife had intuition about Mark? Uh, obviously, it sounds like uh-huh. she did. Do you think? Uh, she did. Yeah. yeah. And uh, when did you start realizing that maybe Mark was up to no good in terms of forging and everything else? When, when did you? When did it occur to you that these documents might be forged? Well, not until after the bombings, and uh, you know, Is that when I, Ken I had Farnsworth came with... to talk to you. Um, well, it was actually, uh, Ken wasn't there. They assigned me to Ken later, but it was when Throckmorton and, and Mike George, um, uh, came down and one other detective, um, and, uh, they came down to our home and it was, uh, oh, about a week or so after, uh, after the, uh, the bombings. And, uh, uh, it was right about the, uh, right about that time. Uh, I think Hoffman had just gotten out of jail. They'd killed him for a few days. And these guys came to our home in Provo, and uh, they wanted to use, Throckmorton wanted to use our Hoffman documents. And, uh, you know, I'd been a criminal prosecutor when I was in Price, Utah, after law school. I was an assistant county attorney in Carbon County. And I knew this was a murder case. And uh, so when the detectives and George came down, I uh, I knew they probably needed to look at these documents, but I couldn't see any reason why, because... Uh, these documents have been vetted by the best people in the field. I've already mentioned Hamilton and Rendell, and um, yep. and I didn't realize at that time that they'd gone to the FBI lab. I was told that later by by uh, President Hinckley, and uh, they didn't want to. Uh, Church didn't want to announce anything at their press conferences until they checked them out, even with the FBI lab. And President Hinckley told me the day after Mark went to prison that uh, they'd vetted my Lucy Mack Smith letter with the FBI. Well, nobody wanted to announce the FBI screwed up. So the church didn't uh, didn't announce any of that at the time, but uh, they were the best people uh, for authenticating that they knew of at the time. Uh, before Jer- George came on the scene uh, with uh, uh, with uh, Flynn, you know, 
and uh, they they were actually question document examiners with uh, with long degrees and years in in service, but quite rare at that time. And so when I handed George uh, my documents at the home on that meeting, they had asked me a lot of very uh, uh, inquiring questions, shall we say, at the time, and I. I got a little nervous about it. I, I told my wife after they left, I said, well, gee, Derek, I'm wondering if they're thinking that I was I was part of this. But that time they had Mark as their prime uh, suspect. And she says, Derek, did it ever occur to you that maybe you were a target? <laughs> and, uh, and I'd never thought about it before then. Uh, and that, that maybe these documents were not real. <laughs> and I'd never thought about that until she asked the question. So um, it really started me thinking. I I still uh, was in denial on that because they had so many authorities that had, uh, had vetted these things before they were uh, either publicized at press conferences or in the press and so on. That um, it wasn't until about two weeks later I used to spend my uh, Wednesdays where when I'd go to Salt Lake to visit Mark after he was in prison or in jail, I would go up and uh, visit with the police. They asked me to come up and. Uh, that was after our uh, escape to St. George, after we were warned um, by Jay Todd and others to leave town. And uh, they, uh, Bud Willoughby, the chief of police, got a hold of me in St. George and said, Brent, we need you to come back and to uh, to help us with this case. And uh, it wasn't until a couple of weeks after that that uh, Kenny Farnsworth, the detective assigned to me, brought in uh, a couple of boxes of uh, burned material taken from Mark's uh, car. And I looked at it for a few minutes. He left the room. He left me in there. At that point, I still think uh, they, I thought they had the wrong guy as the, as the bomber. And I looked at this burned material, and I could see that they were all similar catalogs to the ones that I'd received on books and manuscripts and so on from dealers around the world, the United States and so on. Only I noticed that something different about them, even though they were burned and some of them uh, weren't recognizable, many of them were. And they still had the covers on them, or they still had the staples uh, holding them in place. And I realized as I looked at these that this guy didn't need to look at his catalogs. He wasn't really a dealer at all. And uh, so when Kenny came back in, I said, well, you're right. He's probably guilty of murder. (laughs) He says, gee, what changed your mind? I said, well, all this burn stuff, it's all the same catalogs I got, most of it. And he's never opened any of them. Yeah, first thing Mark, a dealer uh, does is open his man, open his catalogs. Yeah, didn't Mark try to sell a bunch of documents through cat? I know he did. Did he get any customers? I know he put an ad out somewhere that you could. He put order a catalog cat- out once, and uh, yeah, it was early on. I've got a copy of it. Um, it was early on, and uh, he did sell some things. In fact, I bought one item from him from that. It was supposedly a Joseph Smith Senior uh, promissory note. Joseph Smith Sr. is extremely rare. There's only a couple of known things, even though he was the first uh, patriarch to the church. He didn't live long enough, I guess, or people didn't save his handwriting. So it's uh, he's quite rare to find anything of his. I actually traded him a uh, an authentic uh, Al Capone signed photograph uh, for for that piece. And uh, uh, then a couple of weeks later, I, I heard on the radio that uh, this young Utah collector paid uh, 20 bucks or 50 bucks, some low number for this uh, photograph, uh, authentic photograph that is sold for over 4,500 at auction uh, later. And I, I cornered uh, 
Hoffman on that. He says, wait a minute, we got a trade at, at $1,700 for that Joseph Smith uh, senior. And uh, he just kind of shrugged his shoulders and, you know, kind of like, well, you know, somebody made a mistake on that, the news media. But yeah. that was one of the first times I caught him in a lie. And, uh, you know, it, it uh, concerned me at the time, but it didn't keep me away from the great documents he was coming up with, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, why do you think A.J. Simmons and Gene Desi, Gene, Dean Jesse refused mm-hmm. to believe that the documents were forged, even though there was now proof from George Throckmorton? Well, that proof didn't come out until, uh, you mean after the, after Proffman went to prison? At no, before, uh, because they were trying to convince yeah, well, people these documents Throckmorton were wasn't involved. He wasn't involved at all with the Hoffman thing until, uh, until after Mark had uh, gone to gone to jail, uh, he got involved with the preliminary hearing. You know, so Throckmorton was a was was not involved at that point, and uh, so uh, his opinion didn't come to come to pass. In fact, even when uh, even when the preliminary hearing started, uh, Judge Grant told me later that there was no presumption of the documents being fake at all at that point. Uh, oh, Dean was the authority on Joseph Smith handwriting, and he authenticated things as had Rendell as a national dealer and, and Hamilton that you mentioned as a national dealer. So, um, yeah, timing. I mean, Throckmorton wasn't involved till after the, after the bombings. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But I know it was what, wasn't it in the November, December of 85 or something he got involved. And I, I yeah, seem to uh-huh. remember yeah, after the, the bombings were October. Right. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah, and I seem to remember mm-hmm. him and the prosecutors went to Gene Desi, A.J. Simmons, and said, look, these are forgeries, and they refused to believe him. Never mind well, the fact Well, I think that- that's true at that point, and I think that uh, uh, they, you know, they have many years' experience. I don't know about A.J.'s background at all, but I know Dean Jesse was considered the authority on Joseph Smith's handwriting simply because he handled more of it than anybody else in the, in the church in recent years. So why do you think, and I have my own theories, I don't want to get into this, why do you think Mark mm-hmm. Hoffman did what he did? I think it's because it was a grudge against his parents and the church. Would you agree with me? Yeah, yeah, I think that was part of it. Um, I, I think uh, I think he had uh, maybe a grudge there. Um, you know, I think the church grudge is a little more complex, um, and uh, I think a lot of it had to do with a... Uh, uh, his grandfather being uh, excommunicated from the church uh, as a mission president to Samoa during the time of Hubert J. Grant. Um, even his mother on his birthday came by with a suit on Hoffman's birthday. It was December 7th. <laughs> also a day that will live yeah. in collecting infamy. But uh, he's born in 1954. But his mother came by with a suit on his birthday one day when I was waiting for him. And we talked for a minute. And she mentioned the fact that her father had been excommunicated. Um, and, and I found out about that more when I found a book in his, uh, in his bookcase about the Samoan mission presence. When we talked about it, he got very angry, but, uh, yeah, um, later after the bombings and everything, I found a, a document that, uh, was among the papers, uh, that I, I got from, uh, uh, from a number of other people. Nobody was collecting Hoffman stuff except me at the time. Um, and most of what I had, I've donated to the church since because I wanted it. But uh, there was a, a memo, memorandum I still have that Mark wrote out in uh, 1980, uh, the year of the Anton. And he says, I've learned today the name of the man that uh, 
married my parents. Well, his uh, his uh, grandparents. His uh, grandmother was a was a uh, was a plural wife, um, and uh, and when his grandfather was called and serving as a Samoan mission president, he was asked when they found out about this extra extra wife he had uh, during the Heber J. Grant era. And uh, even his mother expressed to me that day, brought, she brought the suit over for his birthday, that how embarrassed the family was over this, because back then they publicly announced that they raked the guy over the coals, you know. William Gailey Sears was his name. And uh, in this memo, Mark uh, wrote that I didn't find till after the bombing, going through stuff I'd acquired since the bombing. He said, I learned today the name of the guy uh, who sealed my grandparents, and it was uh, uh, J.W. Summerhays, and he did it on the authority of President Joseph F. Smith. Well, probably the information's inaccurate there, um, and uh, who knows, but the family took the position that uh, his grandfather was uh, unduly dealt with by Heber J. Grant, and uh, and I think it was a real black mark on their family history, because even his mother was was talking about it. In fact, uh, after um, years later, when I opened my first store in Provo in 2006, um, uh, down uh, where the uh, Newskin entrance is now, we were just putting the sign up, uh, B. Ashworth, and a young lady walked in where my, when my son was working on the floor with a sander and said, hey, this Ashworth name, uh, are you related to the Brent Ashworth? She, he said, yeah, it's my dad. And he says, well, he says, I'm uh, Mark Hoffman's cousin, and I hear that you, your dad's been out telling people that uh, their grandfather, William Gailey Sears, was excommunicated for polygamy. And that's that's not true. That's just a false thing. And Anyway, she cornered me on it the next day, and uh, and I said, well, I was told that early on. And says, well, it's just it's a, it's a lie, and I don't want you to repeat it. A day after that, uh, her father came in and, uh, and said, uh, uh, you know, uh, was my daughter in here yesterday? And I said, yeah. And she explained who she was. And he says, well, she's been on a mission to try to clean up uh, our grandfather's name. Uh, and we all know he was excommunicated. So, you know, so that verified what I've been telling people for, for years about him. But the family was very sensitive to that. And uh, I think one of the things that Hoffman uh, was trying to pay the church back for was the excommunication of his grandfather. For polygamy, and uh, part of my evidence is that uh, among the items I got from his uh, missionary days later was a uh, was his uh, Bible, his uh, uh, LDS Bible that he took uh, to uh, uh, Southwest British Mission, uh, and in it are uh, some loose note paper pages which they put in those LDS Bibles back then, published by the Cambridge Press, and uh, and on one of the full sheets. There were a lot of references to polygamy, including one full sheet in his handwriting on polygamy. And uh, I think Hoffman was, uh, uh, you know, he wanted publicity, he wanted money, both of those Dory talk about later. But I think uh, he also wanted to hurt the church and hurt people's testimonies. Well, it sounds like whenever Mark tried to get information about polygamy from his parents, what happened? They wouldn't talk to him about it. Sounds like he had to dig in the church archives to find it. Am I correct? That's what the book gave me the impression. His parents wouldn't tell him anything. I had that. Imp- I had that impression too that he did a lot of digging on his own. But he uh, certainly was the recipient of recipient of uh, of uh, the family being upset over that uh, that incident with the grandfather. 
So do you think the family actually told him, or do you think he dug it on his own? No, no I think he dug it on his own. His parents were very active in the church, and uh, even though they were upset over all that, they, they maintained their testimonies, as did his wife. Uh, no, Hoffman did uh, that on his own, I'm pretty sure. Did you know Kate Reed, Mark's ex-girlfriend? No, I just heard about her indirectly. Um, okay. I never met her. Uh, where I heard about her was, uh, well, I don't know if this story is worth repeating or not, but uh, oftentimes oh, we ahead. would meet at our spot on Wednesdays in the mall, and uh, usually uh, uh, we would uh, meet at Walden Bookstore. And um, uh, it was after I got done talking with our attorneys about two fifteen. After they got done with uh, with lunch, I found out they would charge me fewer hours uh, for my company if we went to lunch. And so it was after that I'd meet with Mark. Uh, I'd meet him in the morning at his home, and then in the afternoon, usually I'd meet him at the at the Walden Book. And um, any rate, uh, I gave him a ride. My car was always uh, parked in the in the mall parking. Uh, at Crossroads, and uh, his was uh, usually parked up by Deseret uh, Gym, which is where the conference center is now. And uh, I remember he wanted to ride up to his little new sports car. We'd sat in, in it a couple times doing transactions uh, later. But uh, uh, one day he wanted me to drive him up there, and I, he got in my car in parking. We were starting to take off, and uh, and uh, just as we were leaving uh we were driving out there was a uh, pretty young lady that walked in front of our car we had to stop and i guess that got him to speak about his uh his girlfriend he said you know i could have had uh i could have married about anybody he said i had a close girlfriend i didn't name her but that i'm sure was was the one he says we almost got uh, got married but uh it didn't work out and he said i uh i married uh dory because uh you know she was somebody that uh that basically he could mold, he said. So, uh, you know, would do what he wanted to. Um, I don't know. It's probably unfair for me to pass that along now, but uh, you asked about her. And that's the only yeah, time no, I ever that's okay. about girlfriend. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, it just seems like. Uh, I have a lot of respect for, I have a lot of respect for Dory. I think she put up, put up with, a, with an awful lot. Yeah, we'll get into Dory. Um, it sounds like Mark's parents had, high expectations they wanted him to be a general authority maybe the prophet or something is any of that true or was that just mark's girlfriend's perception it sounds like it was true based on the book well i think there's some truth to that i think every mother and dad wishes their son in the church could be, could rise to prominence you know don't you i mean i don't think that's so far out uh, um i guess i never got only, that impression was, well, from my folks well, you know, I think they, they all made good, if you want to say that, rather than called as a general authority or something. They all wish that their um, children make good in the world and carry on their name. Hoffman was an only uh, boy, you know, in his family, and they were of German descent. I think it was uh, would be quite natural for, uh, you know, his father and mother to, to uh, want him to succeed. He was an Eagle Scout, after all. When I first met him, he was in an Elder's Quorum Presidency. Uh, in his ward. Um, they don't talk about that much anymore, but he was a return missionary. He served his whole mission. I ran into three of his mission companions over the years and asked them how he was as a missionary, and they said, oh, they thought he was a pretty good missionary. The only thing they had against him was that he was 
spent his day off sitting bookstores and things and picking up anti-Mormon uh, uh, publications. Yes, he and did. And he didn't kept he? a box on. Yeah, he kept a box under his bed of some of these. I've got a couple of those. My collection I ended up with later, but uh, he kept a box of pamphlets and books under his bed. And uh, his companions invariably asked me, uh, told me, they said they asked him uh, every time they were transferred, well, Mark, why don't you dump that stuff? That's just garbage. But he never would. He just kept adding to it. Yeah, well, I, I remember that now that you mention it, he debated somebody uh, about the book No Man Knows My History and won the debate. He was obviously right. very yeah. good with words. Mm -hmm. um, real quick, uh, before we get into Dory and all that, why was the church so reluctant or they did not want to give any of these documents to the police and the attorney even said so. They had to go through Dallin H. Oaks and after a meeting, uh, Elder Oaks at the time said, yeah, we have to give these documents over. Why were they so reluctant? Um, to uh, reluctant to do what? To, to turn give them uh, over to the, Mark Kaufman's uh, documents? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, George, yeah. Well, I think that they had some heavy advice uh, from uh, uh, from uh, Wilfred Curtin, who was their attorney at the time. Yeah. Yep. And uh, Wilfred, Wilfred Curtin, Curtin McConkie, um, was uh, was the chief attorney. Uh, he was living at the time, and he was uh, President Hinckley's attorney. Basically, President Hinckley was uh, uh, handling the day-to-day -day affairs as the only uh, uh, active member of the First Presidency at that time. Um, the others, of course, were there, but all had uh, health problems and so on. And President Hinckley made it very clear he was not the prophet, but, uh, but he was given uh, the, the hard assignment of carrying the big load at that time for the first presidency, which is kind of hard to imagine, I think. But uh, as you think about it. But uh, yeah, Wilfred Curtin was the, the attorney for the church and he he basically uh, shut everything down. Um, and uh, several of the uh, detectives uh, like Kenny Farnsworth, for instance, told me that, that they couldn't get around uh, legal counsel for the church. Um, and uh, so I think that was the big, I think that was the big hold up there with the church cooperating was they were getting a legal, legal advice to stay out of it because uh, you know and they were downplaying their their role probably with mark as they uh they didn't know where this thing was leading and it obviously turned into a murder case they weren't involved with the murders so uh you know i can see where having been a corporate attorney myself where uh, they were following the advice of counsel pretty much so why was the attorney so reluctant? Why did the attorney give them that advice? I don't know, but I think he was. I think he took a highly de defensive position of the church leaders and felt that uh, you know he, he didn't want them to rug in any further than they than they would have been. Uh, and consequently, I think he overreacted, and um, and in a way, it, it backfired a bit on uh, on uh, the church. Uh, it looked like they were trying to cover something. I think they became ultimately very cooperative, but it took a long time. And George Throckmorton told me initially that they had a hard time, uh, you know, getting anything from the church. He said, my, my documents, I lent them at the house that time. Or, and incidentally, I read him the riot act on those of the time. We, we laugh about it now. He said, these are some of the earliest documents in the history of the church. They're, they're priceless and so on. But, um, but I let him take them. And he says, those are the only ones he had to work on for some time because of uh, because of the, uh, uh, you know, church attorney standing in the doorway. 
Well, let me ask you this. Uh, Hugh Pennock mm-hmm. was grilled by law enforcement. I think it, I can't remember who grilled him exactly, but why was Hugh Pennock so reluctant to say that he was fed up with Mark and upset with him when it was clear that he was? Why did he not admit this to law enforcement? I, I, law enforcement wanted them. I have to no idea. I didn't. I didn't really know Elder Pennock. I think I shook his hand once, so I can't answer your question. I have no idea. Okay. Now let's get into the good stuff. What was Dory like? Mm-hmm. Dory was uh, very supportive of Mark. Uh, my wife thought she was kind of afraid of him, as I mentioned that first meeting well, she we may had at the barbecue. Actually, I, yeah, we can talk and, about that. Um, yeah, I don't know, uh, but uh, she was a very dutiful wife. She had uh, three beautiful children at that time, and another child, I guess, was eventually on the way. Um, but um, uh, I remember being in Mark's home the uh, Soon after uh, the uh, little boy was, his son was born. Um, she was uh, uh, seemed affectionate and a very positive uh, influence. Uh, good wife. Um, you know, I feel that she was one of the real uh, victims, just like the those of those of the families that were killed um, in uh, in the Hoffman deal. She went through a lot. Yeah, uh, but she was very nice. She was uh, uh, she was she was very nice, and uh, she was very supportive of of her husband at the time and all that because uh, she didn't have any. I mean, I think I've read and and have had the opinion as a prosecutor over the years that sometimes the people you fool the most are the ones closest to you because they have the, the biggest trust, you know, in you. Yeah, I was going to ask and, you, how uh, did she not know? that something wasn't up. Didn't she suspect all these chemicals in the basement? She wasn't supposed to. Well, you'd have to, you'd you'd have to answer, answer that by talking with her. I think sometimes, uh, you know, the truth can be staring you in the face, but you don't want to believe it. Um, I think uh, uh, if she knew anything, I think denial is a natural uh, human instinct, especially when it deals with your husband. Um, so I don't fault Dory at all. I uh, I think that she was a as big a victim in some ways as as the other families involved. Well, she definitely stuck with him till the end. Do you think that that was just a survival thing, or do you think she really believed that he was innocent till the very end? Well, I think both. I think she wanted to believe that he was innocent. Um, you know, but I can't speak for her. I mean, you'll have to talk with Dory. Um, well, but uh, yeah, I. I don't find fault with Dory at all in this. I, she may have uh, had her questions about him. Um, we all did. Um, but uh, mine were more on the basis of of his lying to me on different transactions and so on. I well, just, let me uh, ask you, you this, know, though, I, because it sounded mm-hmm. like uh, Mark Hoffman's – I had a uh, I had a professor in 2003, yeah. the fall of 2003 – and he had a Mark Hoffman's nephew in one of his classes years before I got there. And the topic mm-hmm. of ethics came up and Mark Hoffman and Mark's nephew came up to the professor and spoke about Mark in the most inhumane way as possible. And according to my professor, when the third bomb went off, Mark's mother, Lucille, said, I'm not surprised. And in the book, it actually briefly mentioned in uh, Salamander that she was afraid that he was actually guilty. Do you think Mark's mom knew more about what was going on than his dad? Because his dad sure was willing to defend him to the end, probably more so than Dory, it sounds like. 
you know, again, I don't know his parents that well. I think his, I think any mother seems to know their children better than just about anyone alive. That's why when people ask me, what's the best book to read on Joseph Smith, I always send them to his mother's book, you know? Okay. Uh, I think our mothers do know more about us than, uh, than our fathers in many instances and uh, even our siblings. But uh, I have no idea. Uh, I found the, I never met his father. His mother, I did meet. Um, I, I, my impression was there, there were they were very fine people. I think they were working in the Salt Lake Temple. I was told when they heard yeah, about they the were. bombing up the street. Yep. And uh, you know that tells you the kind of people they are. They were they were uh, just as shocked as the rest of the world. I think, uh, particularly more so with being their son. Yeah, I just wonder, because I know Mark was really into the evolution theory, and Mark would bring it up to his dad at dinner and wanted nothing to do with this conversation. I just wonder if Mm -hmm. Bill would have talked to him about it. Maybe that would have settled his grudge a little bit and not act so violent. I don't know. I have no idea. Yeah. Workings of that family. I'm sorry. Um, Well, um, so let me ask you this. Did this ever affect your testimony of the church? Because when I first read uh, the book Salamander back in 2003, I was really shooken up by this whole thing. I just thought, how could a prophet of God and all these general authorities fall for Mark's shenanigans when they have all these connections to God, supposedly? Well, it never bothered me on that angle. I told you about the one time I questioned Joseph Smith, and I went to my father's office and he answered that. And that helped me through that one incident. I never questioned any of the rest of it. And, uh, you know, people that don't understand the role of a prophet uh, will use any excuse uh, against them or the church. Uh, the fact is the prophets have been subject to just about everything else the rest of us have been subject to since the days of Adam. And uh, if you read your Bible, you'll see that uh, some of them made whopping mistakes like David and Moses and others. And uh, let's face it, uh, even the Savior was subject to Judas Iscariot. The only difference was that he knew what he was up to, uh, and the others didn't. Uh, prophets yeah. have been misled, uh, just like the rest of us from time to time, and that shouldn't shock anybody because uh, that's not the role of the prophet. They have to live in this world like the rest of us. Uh, but to question their authority or their uh, uh, or their mission from God, I think that's a, that's a big jump, uh, and I've never questioned that. I don't see any reason to. Yeah. Um, you know, I was very close to President Hinckley during this time, and uh, he had a huge burden on his shoulders <laughs> that particular time, and uh, I think handled it uh, in, in about as good a way as anyone could. I think if we had a lesser man in there uh, running the day-to-day affairs of the church, it might have been a lot worse on the church than it was. But, oh, um, President Hinckley definitely you know, did a good job at running the affairs of the church, especially when he was prophet, no doubt about it. But I wouldn't question the the fact of their position because uh, you know I don't think that's in their calling to be uh, to to uh, uh, to know everything and to be on top of everything. I think uh, Dallin Oaks in one of his great statements uh, after the Hoffman deal said that they can't look upon everybody that walks in their offices as being suspicious. That wouldn't wouldn't allow them to do their work. That's and, true. Uh, and and you can see that it's very possible that that would uh, interfere with the Lord's work here too. The Lord works through men, works through women, works through people, and uh, uh, every one of us is still subject to coronavirus too. You know. Yep. So now, um, uh, we're not. Uh, yeah, we're we're not deified. 
neither are profits. But I, anyone that questions that they're profits, I think has made a, an awful jump because uh, I think uh, my own my own thinking is that they were called of God and that their assignment included. Uh, specific uh, things that they were to do. They may not have included figuring out that Mark Hoffman was was taking them to the cleaners. I don't think that was necessarily their role. Yeah. Uh, Let me ask you this. Is the church still collecting old documents to this day? And are they, I have to ask, are they suspicious now? If I were to come in and say, I have this document from Joseph Smith, look at this. Do you think that they would get real suspicious of me now? Well, I think everybody would. I think we would all question it after Hoffman if we have any sense left with us. Um, But, you know, a lot of things can be overcome by this word provenance. Uh, Our word for it in the church is genealogy. Uh, Just knowing the history of something uh, back several generations, particularly before Hoffman, is very helpful now. And, uh, yeah, the church questions things, particularly like for the Joseph Smith Papers Project. I've been helping them. Uh, in my way with that, because I've collected items of Joseph Smith for 60 years. And uh, we do digitization and so on still. We've donated a number of uh, authentic documents. They also made a request of me uh, last year to to actually uh, 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 film all of my Hoffman material. And uh, and I thought that was smart, too. So I uh, took that up, and they filmed all of all of his work that they had. Uh, I served uh, a couple of missions up there at the church archives and then at the church history library over a period of a number of years uh, as a as a um, uh, as a uh, official missionary of the church. And uh, and uh, during that time, uh, one of the first things we did on my second mission was to try to nail down all of the items that we could that came through Mark Hoffman's hands. And, uh, you know, and I, I did a full register on those, which the church has up there and uh, did some interviews and things which they recorded and uh, uh you know i think that that that's good there's a uh as you may know there's a a netflix film uh being worked on right now on hoffman and a lot yeah. of these documents will probably be portrayed in that in fact i was uh, i wrote to uh, tyler Meesum, the producer this morning and he wrote me back uh that they'd interviewed 23 people for that already he said this morning and they're working on it there at their film lab in Salt Lake uh, for the for hopefully for this fall. Uh, it'll be shown in a three-part uh, series. Uh, unlike most of the uh, productions, I'm hoping that this one, because it involves more of the surviving witnesses, will be more complete. You know than what I we've seen Dory's before. I hope Dory's interviewed in this document. Well, I think she will be, and I, I hope she was. I don't know for sure, but. Uh, uh, you know, the problem is with Dory is that uh, I think she's just playing too close to it. Um, and I don't think uh, uh, she's aware of some of the things that some of the rest of us, frankly, are. I've been on, uh, uh, you know, a, 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 a panel with her before at the Ken uh, Sanders thing uh, a number of years ago in 2005. And uh, Dory was asked the question, what was Mark's motivation, which is the last question to ask. Uh, the first that we don't have an answer for. And she says, well, I think he just wanted this, the press and wanted to make some money. And I thought those were excellent answers, except I think it missed out on the the main issue, which was that he was also trying to change her church history and to hurt people's testimonies. Oh, he and uh, I think that goes, yeah, but she didn't. And so what I'm saying is that I think sometimes we fool the people that are closest to us or that the people closest to 
that kind of perfidy are, are in somewhat of denial, you know, during that time. I think she's had more time to think about it. And I think she certainly would agree with that. But uh, this was uh, 15 years ago. And, Any idea uh, she what was Dory's still up to? Really hurting. Well, she told me uh, back then that she, uh, with another person, had started a, a, a little company that was helping people that had gone through uh, traumatic uh, situations in life, and I compliment her on the fact. I thought, well, gee, you know, you'd be, you'd be greatly qualified for that. So, uh, yeah. good luck on it. I don't know if she pursued that or what she's doing currently. I just wonder. I think I know what you're going to tell me uh, because Bill was so adamant about Mark being innocent. I, I don't understand mm-hmm. why, except for maybe what you said. You fool the people that you're closest to. I so. wonder what uh, Bill's reaction was when he finally admitted his guilt. Was he shocked? Was he? This was during the board. Well, I don't know, series. but I do know that I do know that Bill's no longer with us. Um, and uh, the rumor goes that it just really killed Bill. He never was the same after after that. Um, I don't know if Mark's mother's still living or not. She was a few years ago, but uh, yeah. But anyway, I know his dad uh, passed away early on, and most everybody in the field. Uh, that talked about it and said, well, you know, Mark killed his dad. So I don't know if that's true or not, but that's the impression that's been left. Any idea what Mark's sisters, Heidi and Jody, were like? Never met them. I'm sorry. I can't okay. tell you. Well, uh, a couple, one question I want to ask you, and then I want to talk to you really quick when we're done here. Uh, you've been a member of the church your whole life. Any pioneer stock? Oh, yeah, both sides. Yep. Oh, good. Back now, to one of my ancestors was Alpheus Gifford was one of the first missionaries, went out in 1831 with uh, Leeser Miller, and uh, neither could write, so you've never heard of them except through their converts. They only had one by one convert each, and uh, Leeser baptized Brigham Young, and my ancestor, Alpheus, baptized Heber C. Campbell, his good friend. Okay, and what do you like best about being a member of the Church of Jesus Christ Latter-day Saints? Well, I, I, what I like the, the best about it is having a direct relationship with uh, the Savior, who's the head of the church. Yeah, that's that's a good uh, good point. All right, well, thank you very much for being on this podcast, and uh, you bet. Perhaps I'll interview you, you again sometime. You bet. Thanks. Take care.